buying behavior has changed. Prospects don't click on links and emails anymore, and they don't watch the videos you spend hours creating every week. Instead, send personalized gifts and memes using Vidyu. You can quickly create engaging, personalized content that immediately grabs your prospect's attention, helps you stand out in the inbox, and does it all without forcing them to click anything or go anywhere. Head over to vidyou.io slash salescast to sign up for free and spend less time getting your messages across and more time selling. In the world of sales, you either sink, swim, or break through to the next level. My name's Colin Mitchell, and this is Sales Transformation, a new kind of sales show designed to bring you through the epic, life-changing moments of elite sellers so you can experience your own sales transformation. All right, welcome to another episode of Sales Transformation. I'm very excited to have Andy Paul on today. If you don't know who Andy Paul is then and you're in sales, you should probably get out from underneath the rock that you've been living in. Andy's uh, hit Accelerate Your Sales podcast was acquired by Ring DNA in 2020. Since renamed to Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, the show continues to inspire thousands of sales professionals. And he's written award-winning sales books, Zero Time Selling, Amp Up Your Sales, and has a new book coming out that I'm very excited about. And you're going to have to tune in to find out what it's all about. Andy, welcome to the show. <laughs> Colin, thank you very much. Yeah, I wasn't going to give him too much early on. We got to we got to get him to stick around. Got to get people to stick around. That's this is yeah. We got to program the show correctively. Correctively, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, you are clearly a pro at this, and uh, so. But I'm very excited to talk about the book. I've I've gotten to um, learn a little got bit about an the early book. early look at the book. Yes, you did. Shh! Don't tell too many people. Don't yeah, make well, them, we don't want to make them jealous. Well, hey. You but know. you know what? It's 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 almost out, so they don't have to wait too long. Right. So maybe maybe we can make them a little jealous. But let's let's kick it off here. Just give us take us back a little bit. Like where where did Andy Paul's sales journey start? And then give us a little context, and then let's jump into what we're going to talk about today. Well, gosh, my sales journey started selling women's shoes at J.C. Penney's, as you've heard before. Um, yeah. Back in high school, so that was my my, my first sales job doing a. Holiday fill-in, right? The Christmas season. Yeah. To um, accommodate the rush. So, yeah. Madison, Wisconsin. J.C. Penney. Selling women's shoes. And, but then professionally start off in the computer industry. Um, eons ago where you're selling big roomfuls of computer equipment to, to companies. Yeah. And then right about that time, start seeing more and more of these personal computers show up. So, <laughs> went to work for Apple in the early days of Apple. And a couple other uh, PC startups after that, uh, including one that made the first battery-powered notebook computer. So, so we're always at the leading edge there. And then somehow managed to transition into the wireless and communication space. And, and uh, gosh, spent a long time with a number of startups <laughs> growing teams in the satellite communications industry. So selling large, complex satellite communication systems to major enterprises around the world. And then yeah. started, started my own company, sort of with the goal to one of the real specialties I had is, is how can you as a small, no name, no track record, no brand name company, go take on the big guys and win big deals, big yeah. deals. You know, or seven, sometimes with eight, no product, right? Like that. And sometimes no product. Yeah. 
but uh, you know, these are seven, eight, nine figure deals. Um, and so, yeah, I said, okay, I can work with other small companies to teach them how to go out and compete. And yeah, you don't always have to do this thing like, you know, let's start with small selling to small business first. Then we'll work our way up to commercial. Then we'll do enterprise. It's like, you want to sell to big companies, go sell to big companies. Mm. And that's what we did. Yeah. A lot of people take that other approach of starting small and working their way up. There's some logic to it. I mean, you sort of find out where your product works or so on, but I, I always just took the approach for your, the, if the target was big companies and let's go sell to big companies. Let's teach ourselves. Let's learn how to sell to big companies. Yeah. And the sooner you do that, the better. And it works. You don't have to earn your stripes smalling, selling to small companies. Tell, tell me a little bit about what you cover early on in the book of your, your experience of your, of your first sales training. <laughs> yeah. Well, cause this, that'll help kind of set the stage of like, you know, that it's not that far off from what still happens today. Sure. Yeah. So I was working for a big company at the time called Burroughs. It's now Unisys or even a successor to Unisys, but it was at the time the second largest computer company in the world after IBM. And every year they hired hundreds, if not thousands of college new yeah. grads to put them in these training programs, sort of the express intent of weeding most of them out and hoping what was left was the, the pearl, yeah. so to speak. Seeing what would stick. Seeing what would stick. So you have to be on the job two weeks. I was sent to one of our major regional training centers to with uh, new college grads from all over the country, new yeah. sellers, and run through this program to sort of teach basic, you know, selling 101 type thing. And yeah, I mean, I, as I talk about in the book, because I sort of felt a little bit out of place because everybody was so salesy, right? Sort of a, a car salesman type type personas. And, and that was just not me. I was introverted still am to some degree mm. and and it just yeah didn't seem didn't seem right but anyway you get sent home after two weeks of completing the course and everybody's sent home with an envelope from the instructor that sometimes was you know the end of a career because the instructor's evaluation counted a lot Ooh. and yeah i dutifully returned to my branch office i was working out of oakland california at the time hand the envelope to my boss and he, a few months later, calls me into his office and he said, so, how did training go? <laughs> and I was thinking, well, that's a trap question if I ever heard one. Uh, yeah. And he's looking at the evaluation. He says, well, you know, Jim, the instructor, he thinks we should fire you. Wow. <laughs> and I'm suddenly, I'm a, <laughs> it's like, oh, my God, as a young person, first thought was, what am I going to tell my, fer- my parents, right? Yeah. <laughs> Two weeks into my first job, I'm going to get fired. He said, yeah, Jim thinks we should fire you because you're too analytical. <laughs> and you'll never make a good salesperson if you're too analytical. And that was yeah, sort of the MO then is, is they were looking for hunters. They were looking for extroverts. They were looking for, yeah. as you said, as you see in still in so many job postings today, which has absolutely no value for the buyer at all. Yeah. And actually has fairly little value for the seller too. Uh, lessons that's yeah we seem to be unable to learn as a profession so my yeah my boss brian just crumpled up the paper and basically threw it away and said go on sell something (laughs) uh why do you think he decided to not fire you well i think 
he had felt that he had taken a risk hiring me in the first place because he was somebody that only hired people that had uh, gone to an undergraduate business program. So mm-hmm. like in a, our cases, you know, UC Berkeley and, and the Bay Area, UC Berkeley and San Jose State and Hayward State and, yeah. uh, you know, state colleges and universities that had undergraduate business programs. So he wanted undergraduate business majors. And I was a history major. Um from Stanford and not to hold that against me, but he, his impression was that, Hey, if you went to Stanford as an undergrad, then you're just here, you're biding time. You're going to go get your MBA. You're going to go get a law degree. You're going to do something else. And I started to convince him. I was like, maybe, but I don't know. <laughs> I'm 21 years old. I don't know what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so he really felt, and yes, he reinforced me time and time again, that, that he was taking a chance on me. So I think he felt like he hadn't seen that, that bet play out yet. And so he was willing to give me enough rope to go hang myself on that. Even though you didn't have the qualities that are supposed to make up the perfect salesman, right? Extrovert, gift to the gab, you know, kind of bro. Which people still hire for today. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I I ask sales managers all the time as, you know, I see a job posting and I'm, you know, dealing with a client or something. I'll say, so, okay, here's this job posting you've got listed Mm -hmm. for a salesperson. So these attributes you have listed, how do they help the buyer? Have you asked your buyers? Have you asked your buyers what they need from your salespeople to They'd help probably them? probably throw up if they saw the, if they saw the job. Just, that's who I'm going to have to deal with? Well, yeah. and But heaven forbid you go ask the intended target of, of your sales efforts Ooh. what they need from you in order to help them make decisions. And yeah. it's such an easy question to ask. Why not? Why as a sale? Why do you? It's all sales centric, right? We think we know best what's going to get the job yeah. done. Ask the customer. I mean, yeah. we do that about product features. We do it about you know services that we offer. Why wouldn't we do it about how we help them make the decision to acquire and invest in these products and services that we we sell? Seems like such a simple concept. Yet I You'd don't think, know if right? there's very many people doing that. I think it would be. <laughs> Kind of the equivalent of getting caught with your pants down. <laughs> like you'd just be like, uh, you know, I mean, I think that. What, uh, what's the worst that could happen if you, you find out? I mean, it's yeah. the same thing as, as so if you go into an organization, you talk to sales management, sales leadership, and they say, look, we need to train our sellers. Yeah, we need to continue to upskill them. We're going to train them on ABC. And my question to the manager is always, well, why ABC? Mm. Well, you know, we've got all these tools. We're listening to what's, you know, conversations. This always seems to be a weakness. I said, so, well, sure. That's good. Great. Love the technology. But have you asked the buyer Mm. (laughs) where the sellers are falling down? Mm. It's so simple. Just ask. These are the people that are interacting with their sellers. You're judging it based on what you hear. Yeah. If you're listening to recording. Why don't you take it from the buyer's perspective, what they're hearing and what they're receiving, what they think. And it might have a huge impact on you in terms of what you think you need to train or educate your sellers about. Wow. And it's so simple. Go ask. And it's just, you know, it's part of the frustration that comes out in the book a bit is that I draw the distinction between leaders and sales leaders and sales bosses. Yeah. Yeah, it's just the bosses that just plow straight ahead doing the same crap. Time after time after time. This is not a new problem. This has been going on for you know, 
as long as we've had modern professional selling for 100 plus years, look at it from the buyer's perspective. Yeah. Trying to hire somebody, what do the buyers need? You're trying to train your people, what do they need from you? They're not getting. Imagine how you'd stand out from your competition if you're actually asking the buyer and then, you know, targeting your training and your education for your sellers in order to help the buyers. Might surprise you what happens. Yeah, I think I'm just thinking through asking the buyer about, I'm still thinking through, I'm still very hung up on that point of the job description. Like, right. You well, would probably it. get two totally different things, you know, uh, it would be, it would be night and day versus what, and, and into your point of the, like the calls, right? Like your people are making, you know, these sales bosses are training their sales reps based on this one-sided point of view, leaving out the perspective of the person that matters most. Yeah. Shocking, isn't it? Yeah, this, this is, this is what we do. I mean, does a buyer need a hunter? No, no. How's that benefit the buyer? Not at all. Does the hunter need, does the buyer need a closer? Whatever that is. I, I don't really have an idea what a closer is, but yeah, uh, cause I think it's, you know, pure myth making, but no, they don't need a closer. I mean, you still see they jobs. Need to, we need, you know, hiring openers, hiring closers. They need, <laughs> of course, all the time. What they need is they need somebody who's curious, who's open-minded, who's analytical, a problem solver, somebody that can help them understand the sort of depth and breadth of the problems and the challenges they have and understand what the best options might be to solve those. Hmm. A hunter and closer has nothing to do with it. And it's just, I said, it's, it's, <laughs> it's kind of lunacy that we continue to have you know, sales leadership that, that puts together job postings that, that emphasize these qualities. Cause in many respects, you know, what they emphasize are behaviors that buyers resist yeah. and reject. I mean, there, there's a, I reference a book, uh, in my book, uh, a book written by a gentleman named Jonah Berger, who's a professor at Wharton school and his book called the catalyst. And he's writing about persuasion and mm-hmm. how helping people change minds, excuse me. But he says, he cites research in there that says that people are universally to a person, everybody in the world resists being persuaded. Oh, yeah. Well, but how many sales books have been written with persuasion in the title? Yeah, many. So, I, and, I, and you think about the training we do is so, gosh, we spend billions of dollars a year in the U.S. alone training salespeople in behaviors that the buyers universally resist. That sounds mm. like a good idea, doesn't it? Fantastic, fantastic <laughs> idea. If you're in the business of <laughs> training those tactics, this, these are, and this is this is yeah, this is this is the problem, right? Is you know, we've had this this sort of revolution in the last 10, 15 years with with incredible technologies coming into the sales space and the marketing space, and people think that the usage of that technology constitutes modern selling, mm. and it doesn't because when you're automating antiquated, obsolete behaviors. It's not modern. It's still the same old crap. You're just yeah. doing more of it. You're amplifying yeah. it. So if we want to be modern, we have to change our perspective about what our job is as sellers and how we're working with our buyers. That's modernizing selling. Well, the problem is, yeah, the, the problem is 
it's hard to automate and scale a real modern buyer-centric sales process. It's a little harder to scale and automate that, right? I'm, well, I'm not convinced that's the case. I think it starts with you know, the fact that we send sellers out into the world with the wrong perspective on what their job is. And it starts from leadership. And it's not, this is not a new problem. This is, again, one that's existed for decades. Is that sellers think their job is to go out and persuade somebody to buy their product. Yeah. And when you think that's your job, then, you know, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? Yeah. And that's a problem. And so these behaviors that emanate from this idea that you have to persuade someone, you know, is these series of bad behaviors I talk about in the book that's, you know, salesy or selling yeah. out in total, right? We're selling out. Yeah. They have no benefit to the buyer. Sellers, for the most part, don't like doing them, but they're trained to do this. Yeah. The alternative is it's not just a, your job isn't to persuade somebody to buy your product. Your job is to... First of all, understand what's the most important thing to them, both in terms of the problem they're trying to solve and the outcomes they want to achieve, and then help them get that. That's your job is to help them get those things that are most important to them. So if you look at it from that perspective, it's a completely different set of actions that you take to try to help the buyer. And as long as we're sending people and sellers into the world, think of their job as, oh, I got to persuade that person. Every person is a target. Yeah. You know, as I wrote in my first book, is you know, sales is not something you do to somebody. It's something you do with somebody. So I'm curious to get your perspective, right? Because mm. you talk about influencing people, mm. right? And I think that there's probably a lot of people that don't know the difference between influencing and persuading. So maybe you could help, you know, to a seller that's like, hey, my boss keeps telling me I got to, you know, I'm a hammer and I need to hit these nails or I need to close these prospects and yeah. keep treating people like a transaction. Mm -hmm. So how do I wrap my head around? I need to actually influence people rather than persuade them. Sure. Well, it starts with the perspective that I just gave you, right? Your job isn't about persuasion. Your job is about understanding and helping. And so start there. And you know, persuasion, if you look up the, the definition, the direct in dictionary, it's about prevailing upon someone, right? Mm. It's about, it's fundamentally decisions about it's coercing somebody to do something at heart, right? Prevailing through force, basically prevailing through force of argument or whatever. It's almost like if you, if you win the deal, I won and you lost, right? But it's a zero sum game. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. When you look at persuasion from that perspective, it is a zero sum game. And because if I've somehow persuaded you to change your mind, yeah, I win, you lose, you are wrong. Horrible way to start yeah. a connection or relationship with a buyer. Where even if, again, you look at the definition of, of influence, is it's about having a, an impact or an effect upon the thoughts and actions of others. Mm. And so you just visualize that, right? One is I'm prevailing. One is I'm having an effect on the way people are thinking and acting. I want to have that effect on people. And so... Yeah, it's just, again, it starts with the perspective. Because if you're trying to help people, then you're there to serve. You're trying to influence the choices and trade-offs they make about how they achieve the things that are most important to them. And if you're in persuasion, you're basically saying, look, there's one, there's one answer to this problem. 
Right. Well, first of all, there's one problem and there's one answer to it. And that's, that's my product I'm selling. And whether it's the right fit or not, I'm going to persuade you that that's the right I'm going to decision. Try yeah. Because yeah. that's my job. Yeah. And a perfect example is, you know, this week I posted something on LinkedIn about advice I've gotten from my first boss in sales. And I had asked him one time, well, what do you do when people say they're not interested? And mm. he said, go find someone who is. <laughs> Which is the absolute right answer. We live in a big world. There's lots of people out there that are interested in product or service you're selling. Go find someone who is. Instead, what we do is with the persuasion mindset, we train sellers. If someone says, I'm not interested, to say, well, that's an objection. Mm. Objection to what? They're not objecting. It's not like a courtroom. Somebody says, I object. They're not objecting. They're just not interested at that point in time. doesn't mean they won't ever be interested, but at that point in time. They're not interested. Right. So what we do, though, is yeah. we train sellers, go invest some of your time in, in emotional capital, relational capital yeah. that you might have, possibly have with this person and get them to change their mind. Yeah. Which you know, most times is just fruitless. And what have you done at that point? You have changed their mind <laughs> and you've pissed them off. And the odds of sort of saying, well, gosh, this is an account I probably should be in nurture mode that maybe in three, six months could be ready, could be a prospect. Now we burn that bridge. Yeah. yeah. And this happens with increasing frequency. Now, and, and let's, and let's, let's take another look at it. Like, let's just say you do convince them like, or persuade them, right? Mm. Good chance that deal's not going to stick around for any significant amount of time. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's examples I give in the book is, and this is a classic, what I call salesy behavior, which is, you know, self-destructive is, and this has happened to me, you know, as a seller, I go out and I'm building a good relationship, good connection with a buyer, um, yeah. you know, develop some credibility, develop some trust. They think I'm really truly there to help them. And then come the last week of the month, my boss says, mm. well, you really need to close that deal. And it's like, well, no, they're gonna, they're ready to close next week. No, no, this week, end of the end of the month, end of the quarter, bring it in. And it's like, well, suddenly you've exposed to the buyer very clearly that, yeah, you really aren't there to help. It is purely transactional. Yeah. And you know, I've challenged sales leaders time and time again. So tell me, you ever run an ROI on that decision to pull a deal in two days so you can make it happen this quarter versus next? Yeah. Never, ever. Right. It's just, well, this is what we do. Yeah. Or and how often sales bosses are thrown out discounts left and right. Well, finish strong. Like that's how always much? The thing, that's always the thing that, that <laughs> amuses me is that, that so much of what's written is that salespeople are the one giving money away discounts. Yeah. No, really study the problem. The discounting starts most of the time with the managers because oh, yeah. they want to hit their number. And I've, I had experience. I write about in the book. You know, I had this one instance where it's sort of the, yeah. one of the last times I did this. It's still pretty early in my career. Had this big account that was, you know, worth well over a million dollars a year to me and had developed from scratch one of the first big deals I'd ever, you know, big accounts I'd ever developed in my career mm-hmm. like that. And we're getting to the end of the year and the customer said, well, I've got another big order coming. Um, and they were going to be shut down between Christmas and New Year's. And the deal didn't, come in. He was going to fax the order. He didn't fax the order before they shut down on Christmas Eve. I was in good shape. 
I'd more than made my number for the year. Hmm. But the CEO of the company, yeah, not so much. And he was pretty freaking out. So he forced me, <laughs> basically at gunpoint, to <laughs> call the customer at home on Christmas Oof. Eve, the middle of you know, opening presents with his kids, to basically demand that he you know, go to his home office and fax me an order. Oof. And the relationship was never the same. And they churned out, well, it wasn't the first year, but <laughs> the first real opportunity they had, they started swapping us out. Yeah, we completely trashed wow. that relationship. And it's completely unnecessary. And it was just, yeah, for for not a very good reason. And it's like, it's not that you don't want to hit your numbers. You want to hit your numbers. You don't have to resort to that behavior. And if you're dealing with customers the right way from the beginning, you're not going to have this hockey stick impact at the end of the month. You can, and under the quarter, you can manage it. And, yeah. um, but if you give into it and if you refuse to modernize the way you look at selling, then you're always going to be stuck with that. And that story, I'm sure, is very common. <laughs> There's many sellers that have been in a similar situation, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, mean, I had one even in my first job that was even worse. <clears throat> you know, the guy who refused to fire me. Yeah, we came up against it sort of my first full year on the job. I had, again, another big account. I had worked hard. I had closed. One of the mm -hmm. bigger ones we had sold in that branch office. And the branch manager's bonus was based, mm -hmm. in large part for the year, was based on this contest that ran in, in May and June every year. So, yeah, it was primarily a hardware business at that point. So pretty much anything that wasn't nailed to the floor got shipped. And he wanted a, he had a, an accessory, an add-on in the back office that he wanted to sell, sold list mm. price for about 60000 He wanted to get off his books. He didn't want his inventory at the end of his bonus mm. period. As far as bonus, this contest was based on lack of inventory um, at the end of the accounting period. So, yeah, he forced me to go to this customer and basically give this piece of equipment away, pretty much. But the way it happened was, you know, the customer wasn't, really happy with us at that moment. Yeah. The boss sends me and says, don't come back unless you get the order. I mean, he was serious. Don't come back. Well, oh, I came back gosh. after like the, the customer's office is about half a mile from mine. Come back after I was an hour or so. And it's like, no, this guy basically threw me out of his office because they're just not happy. And he's not going to spend $60,000 now. And this $60,000 then is like quarter million dollars now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I said, yeah, he's not going to do it. Go back. So I did this like three or four or five times during this day. I spent basically this whole day oh trying to get this order for, for the boss at, you know, just so he could get his bonus. In the meantime, we're just completely trashing the relationship with this customer that worked so hard. Very buyer-centric approach. <laughs> yeah, completely. <laughs> and but this is this is not that far-fetched. I mean, this is this is still going on today. Oh in a oh, yeah. well just look at Almost any company, when they get 60% of their orders in the month come in the last five days, I mean, they're counting on it. They're planning for it to be this way. Yeah. And it does not have to be this way. You know, part of it starts, and the way it really starts is how you're dealing with your buyers. Because right. if it's purely transactional, then they're not stupid. They know, hey, I'll wait for the last day of the, last day of the month. I'll get a good deal. 
buyers almost expect it. Well, they know it. So they'll yeah. wait. We've trained right. them. We've trained them. But if you deal with them differently from the beginning, then you're not so focused on the periods right. where you need to close it. They're gonna, you get a good, good deal, good business with this customer. It's going to be a good order. And if it hits you know, two days after the end of the month, so be it. You get it the next month. At a non-discounted rate. <laughs> yeah. And but the thing is, you just have to have enough good opportunities like that in the pipeline so that you hit the numbers yeah. you need to hit. I mean, that's, that's the whole thing is that it's not binary. You know, this is not like only way to hit our numbers is to act salesy. And that's just not the case. And, and well, it's, it's, it's so common, you know, because of this end of month, end of quarter, end of year, the vast majority of people in sales are stressed out, working long hours, trying to just do exactly what you did, you know, going back and forth, forcing these orders that to hit numbers so sales bosses can get their bonuses. Well, yeah, but I mean, in some cases, though, sellers sort of lean on the idea that I'm just going to let this sort of come to fruition the last week because I'm going to get that discount to help me close the deal. Uh as opposed to saying, look, I can close this deal on the merits, right? We're going to create a yeah. great buying experience for this buyer. And we're going to differentiate our company and ourselves individually by how we deal with them and how we help them go through their buying journey. Because we know from research, whether it's you know Gartner or CEB and the Challenger sale, that yeah, uh, the majority of the criteria the buyers use to uh, make their decision based on their buying experience. So I want to focus on creating that positive buying experience. And if I have enough of those going at one time, you know, sort of idea that I'm <laughs> going to suddenly turn that into a transactional uh, piece of business in order to close in a certain week or day or whatever, sort of goes out the window. And you can, right. build, you can build your business to that. Again, All the- it doesn't mean things are always going to come on a time. It doesn't mean there are going to be times like everything. It's not 100%. But this yeah. is the way you want to act because, yes, there will be times when you need to bring things in. But if you have that relationship with the buyer where they know that you're there to help them, and then maybe you need a favor, then perhaps they might be in a position to do that for you. And the thing is, is if you've put in all the hard work, like you mentioned in these couple of examples, right? Building the relationship, building the connection, building the rapport, building the trust, all these things that are important and you show up as a different person <laughs> the last week of the month, the last day of the month, the last day of the quarter. Yeah. All that work that you've done up until that goes out the window. Well, uh, yeah. So let me just give you a perfect example. Of this is the importance of the buying experience and how that can overcome difficulties. Right? So I was selling a deal to one of the major media companies in the United States and this was for the, the uh, first real-time onboard entertainment system on airplanes and delivered via satellite. Hmm. And so we were down. I was meeting with the senior VP of this media company with a guy that worked for me. And we we're in a conference room. We are negotiating the deal. And after the end of the... I can't remember, it was the end of the first day or the second day, I get a call from the CEO of the company I was working for and one of the co-founders who was also a senior executive. 
And this is a big deal. I mean, this was, yeah, seven-figure deal. Uh, in today's terms, an eight-figure deal. And, and they said, uh, how's it going? I said, well, yeah, it's, it's going. And I think we're mm. getting there. We're making progress. He goes, okay, well, we sorry, I got a problem. I said, well, what's that? So we were just rerunning our cost buildup for this because this was a program where they were going to pay us uh, better for our million dollars to develop this system for them that had never been designed before. And then they're going to pay us millions more to build it and put it on airplanes. Mm-hmm. And um, they say, yeah, we're just going through the cost numbers. We spotted an error. I said, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you start to see where it's coming. And yeah, where's this going to yeah. go? Well, we need to raise our prices. I said, oh, well, we, we sort of you know, have done that or just part of the negotiation already. They said, uh, yeah, well, uh, we're going to change that because, yeah, this era was so big that we're going to lose money. I said, like, how big? I said, like, 50%. <laughs> so I had to go back into the room. Wow. To this senior VP of this large publicly traded company. And say, yeah, it appears to have been a mistake made when we were doing the math. And uh, we're going to raise our prices. Now, he went completely nonlinear, as you might expect. Because he had been promising the board and the CEO that this deal was going to get done. And they were, they were already on the verge almost of starting to advertise they were going to have this offer this service. Yeah, I mean, I... Thank God he wasn't holding anything sharp because I'd probably be, I'd probably be dead. I mean, he would be I'd, here to tell us the story. I'd, and rightfully so. I mean, he just just went off, just went off um, and called me every name in the books and, you know, he's baiting and switching them, blah, blah, blah. You know, all perfect from his perspective, perfectly valid. Yeah. So he got basically escorted out the door of the building. Wow. But then two days later, closed the deal. But it would only have been possible to come back in and re-engage based on the connections I had built, the mm. credibility I'd built, the trust I'd built. They knew it wasn't me. They knew that we weren't trying to pull a fast one on. They knew that this was a problem, it was problematic, and we came up with a joint solution that worked for both parties. Wow, but if what you'd an made incredible it, story. If you had made it purely transactional, it was just dead, right? It would have been dead. Yeah. But the experience they'd had with me and with the other people from my company up to that point had been so positive. We'd beat out several companies that were you know, 100, literally 100 times larger than us to win the deal. You know, people want to underestimate the importance of these connections you make with other people. Yeah, these people weren't my friends, and they certainly aren't going to be my friends after that. But there was that level of connection and rapport. And, yeah, that's one of the sell-in pillars we talk about. I talk about in the book, connection, yeah. curiosity, understanding, generosity. I understood where they were coming from. I understood what they were trying to accomplish. It helped us come up with a solution because we really did understand each other. Um, so, yeah, so – Bad things happen sometimes, not because you know something's being forced down your throat by by a higher up, but just happens because yeah, shit happens occasionally. 
Yeah. In the and absence for who... of this connection, in the absence yeah. of this positive, creating this positive buying experience as opposed to just purely sort of salesy transactional way of selling that unfortunately most sellers subscribe to. Yeah, the deal would have been dead. And for anybody who doesn't think that the buying experience matters, <laughs> that story <laughs> can maybe help convince them. Um, let's, well, let's dig, let's, let's dig into the pillars a little bit, right? Sure. Cause I, there's a lot of, you know, I, I myself was taught a lot of these salesy tactics that I had to unlearn. And I think that's pretty common for a lot of people in sales. Mm-hmm. They get whatever sales job they can. They typically fall into sales or it's their plan B or fall back. You've heard them all, all the stories, right? Right. And they just don't know what they don't know. And they have sales bosses telling them this is how we do things. And at some point they realize this doesn't feel so good. And, and what happens when they feel that oftentimes they leave, right? They, yeah. they leave sales. Oftentimes they think sales is not for me. I knew it not wasn't for me. For me. <laughs> and as I write right. about in the book, I took a different approach, which was instead of me working for sales, I was going to make sales work for me. And mm. so I was bound and determined <laughs> from the first job because, you know, one of my reactions to my first sales training that was going on and watching the videos that were showing of the supposed role models was what human acts this way. And yeah. I wasn't going to act that way. I, I couldn't act that way. That wasn't who I was. And so if I was going to have a career in sales, I was going to have to find a way to sell that aligned with my, my character, my values, uh, my strengths as, as an individual. And as sellers, you owe it to yourself, to find that path, right? And, it, and work somewhere that allows. Yeah. And if where you work that. doesn't allow you to do that, then go find another place that will. Because there are, there are sales leaders out there that will give you the freedom to, and the autonomy to develop into the best version of yourself. Yeah. And now more than ever, because employees have more leverage in the, the wake of sort of the great resignation, if you will, right. is find those, but even still demand it in the way you act. Yeah, you know, I, I, I always sort of took guidance from managers as sort of suggestions, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And I would look at it in the context of what I was trying to accomplish. And I'd look at it in the context of my own experiences that I developed and in the way I thought and what I thought my strengths were. And I'd say, yeah, that's something worth trying or, I know I don't think that part of it's going to work. And you have to have some amount of, of courage, like courage with a small C, yeah. to, to push back when it's not right. Mm. That's tough for a lot of people. It's tough for a lot of people, but no one cares about your success as much as you do. Right? I mean, sad fact of life is, you know, there are exceptional leaders out there that do care. But if you're working for a sales manager who doesn't know what are the things that are most important for you in your life? What are you trying to accomplish? Mm-hmm. You know, what are the things that are driving you that are motivating you? If they don't understand that about you, well, they, then well, they all think which, it's just money. They yeah. think It's just money. You got to be money motivated, which is the last thing you want to be <laughs> is. So if they don't know that about you, then yeah, they don't care about your success. They're not invested in your success the way that you are. You don't always need a manager who's invested in your success, but that's the case. You need to be invested in your success and you need to take the mm. steps you think are right. And that's, that's the path I took. And I'm not the only one. There's, I think all the top sellers take that path and say, yeah, 
I'm going to be open-minded. I'm going to take, be influenced by lots of things, you know, books, podcasts, speakers, you know, videos, all these mm-hmm. things I'm going to take. I'm going to filter these through and I'm going to say, yeah, that, that's something I want to try. I'm going to go experiment with that, see how that works. Yeah. And then instead of having one methodology that, you know, there's, there's never just one process is you have your own sales process that you develop yep. within the framework of what your company is trying to do. You optimize it for you. And when you take that approach to it, your odds of success go up quite a bit. I mean, there's no shortage of studies that have been done about how people are more productive and more creative when they have more control over the choices they make. Yeah. Right. So you have to demand that, that autonomy, that agency in the choices you make about how you're going to sell. I love it because you really got to have your own experience and find what works for you instead yes. of just listening to all the talking heads that are shouting off. This is the way you got to do things. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I love this book I've just written, <laughs> but a hundred percent of it's not going to be for a hundred percent of the people. And that's, that's fine. Find the stuff that works for you in everything that you're consuming online or from management or wherever, filter it through what's going to work for you. You have to take some chances. You got to push yourself outside your comfort zone to try new things, but it's the trying mm-hmm. new things that get you to where you want to be. Yeah. And yeah, this quote in the book, which I love, which was people listen to my podcast and I'm a huge soccer fan and talk about soccer a fair amount, but there's a quote from Bruce Arena, who had been the, the coach of the U.S. men's team for a number of years yeah. and now coach of the New England Revolution. But talking about Clinton Dempsey, who was perhaps one of the greatest American soccer players, if not the greatest, and who had success both in the U.S. and Europe. And so a reporter asked Arena, says, what makes Dempsey so different from everybody else? And Arena's answer was, he tries shit. <laughs> and that's what you have to do as a seller. You have to try shit. Yeah. It's, it's some will work, some won't, some, some won't, will feel but good. Just don't accept, won't. you know, oh, we're training you in this method. It's like, I don't care what method you are using, you've been trained in. If you're not focused on the four pillars that I talk about, that's just not going to be as effective as it could be for you. you know, if you're not leaning right. into the human side of yourself, and, you know, these human behaviors of, you know, connecting and curiosity and understanding and generosity, doesn't matter what method you're trained in, you're never going to be optimized for you unless you're mm. bringing out the human side of you into that. I love that perspective. And the book is definitely going to probably teach you some things that uh, go against some things that you've maybe been hearing for, for a while. Yeah, possibly. I mean, I think for... <laughs> Yeah, but I think there's also, as I said, a lot of people, this is this is how they've done it, right? Is you carve your own path. And as much as I think there's a emphasis, an overemphasis in sales and sort of trying to make a cookie cutter, easily replicable experience from seller to seller, is it tends to gravitate towards sort of the lowest common denominator. And again, that's not going to be the best buying experience. And I mean, it, you're dealing with humans and they're just too dynamic to say, this is the silver bullet way that we're going to get things done. Yeah. Well, and I, I like to say is, is I'm one of what, seven and a half billion people in the world. You're one of seven and a half billion people in the world. When you and I have a conversation, if you're a buyer and I'm a seller, 
that conversation's just by definition is not going to be like any other conversation that's ever taken place. Right. And as a seller, you have to be mindful of that, that it's, it's not, Oh, this, this sounds just like somebody else I talked to when you're talking to a buyer. It's hmm, what's different about this conversation Mm -hmm. and being alive to that and bringing, I said, your, your curiosity to that, your desire to truly understand the buyer and what's important to them bringing that to the conversation, then it's going to be a unique conversation. But you're going to be in a unique position at that point because one of the biggest sources of value that you as a seller can bring to a buyer is to make them feel understood. This is what the biggest complaint, all the studies about complaints that B2B buyers at all levels in a company have with sellers is they don't understand what we're trying to do. And the thing is, you don't need to necessarily know that ahead of time. It's good to have product knowledge. It's good to have industry knowledge. But again, the customer situation is going to be unique. They're not going to be like all the others. So it's going to require that you go to a deeper level to really understand what it is that's most important to them. And if you come away with that understanding, you will stand out. You will be differentiated because the Mm. customer is going to look at that as a huge source of value. It's like, yeah, we want to work with Colin because Colin really gets it. He really understands what we're trying to do. And sometimes what's most important to them may have nothing to do with what you do. Sometimes. Oh, yeah. Sometimes. <laughs> I mean, And I think that's why a lot of sellers are kind of a little scared to go down that path. Like this road may not lead back to me. Well, that's possible. Sure. Yeah. But other times it, it's more often I think it leads to just a different perspective on what you do that's valuable. Oh yeah. And, and sometimes sellers are afraid to go that because again, they, as sellers, you think you need to have an answer. You don't need to have the answers. You need the questions, right? You need to Mm. be prepared to ask questions. If you go and think, I don't show up and not knowing answers to questions that you should already know, but right. You know, know, show up prepared, do your research, but, asking questions is going to get you the answers that most sellers aren't going to have. And it depends how you ask them, right? I mean, if you, if you, if you come in with sort of a, a pitch approach <laughs> and then you do some follow-up question on the pitch, you've already gone down the wrong path. Yeah. And or just, my personal favorite is the interrogation style. The interrogation style, yeah. <laughs> but you can see, even the interrogation style is, is, this is a point I make in the book is, again, we're training sellers think about it is you've, you've got a playbook. Uh, mm-hmm. You may have a scripted list of questions or you've got a, you know, a list of questions that maybe your peers ask and through that, you know, you've also aggregated one list of questions you typically ask buyers at any point in time. And then you don't go any deeper. And so mm-hmm. you're just collecting information. So you know yeah. a lot perhaps about the buyer, but what do you really understand about the buyer? See, and this is the critical issue is you can know a yep. lot of information about a buyer, but if you don't really understand the context of that information, if you don't understand what's driving, what's in every opportunity, there is one thing that's more important than all the others. Hmm. And it's your job to find out what that is. What's the most important thing to the buyer? And then how do you help them get that? And I'll just give a, if you have time, a, you know, a quick yeah. anecdote about that is or <laughs> reasonably quick anecdote is is with the notice startup I was with, we were selling the first onboard high-speed, a system to do the first onboard on cruise ships, high-speed internet browsing for staterooms and voice over IP. And 
And this it was early days of the internet. And mm-hmm. so it was pretty revolutionary. And we were competing, got startup, we were competing against some big name system integrators. Yeah. Um, we got down to the final two. They narrowed down to two vendors, us and another, and then they sent out an RFP, final RFP. And I'm looking at all the requirements, and there's hundreds of them in this compliance matrix, you know, that we had to answer yes or no, do we comply or not? And I turned to the seller, I said, well, we're never going to win based on this. I said, you have to go back and find out what's most important to them. What's really driving this, right? Because all these requirements can't be equally important. Mm-hmm. And so he had developed a decent relationship with the CEO of the company. And so he goes back, actually, he got on a plane, went to him. Kuala Lumpur to talk to them. And um, he comes back and he says, yeah, what I found out from the CEO is he doesn't really care about the stateroom browsing on the internet. He doesn't really care about voice over IP. What he cares about is that the satellite link connecting the onboard casinos to headquarters never goes down because he wants to know to the minute how much money he's raking in on the onboard casinos. Hmm. That was his most important thing. And so we completely reshaped how we're going to respond to the proposal to focus almost exclusively on that, how that satellite link was never going to go down. There was hot backup, you know, the redundancy built in up to the wazoo. It just was never going to go down. He was always going to know. We won the deal based on that because we understood what was most important to them. And that, yeah. and it wasn't, it wasn't highlighted in the RFP at all. In fact, it was barely a, present. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's such a great point, right? Because knowing, knowing things about your prospect, but not understanding them shapes everything that you do after, Mm -hmm. right? How you respond to an RFP, how you structure a demo, how you structure the deal, all the decisions that you make after knowing certain things is going to reinforce that you truly don't understand what's most important to them. Yeah. And I I give a little simple framework in the book about, you know, what you can do in, in a discovery mode again, cause I, I don't think discovery happens on one occasion during deal it happens every time you interact with the buyer you should be asking questions. But when you're digging down on something is oftentimes buyers or sellers will get up too soon, right? Is they'll get an answer mm-hmm. and they'll sort of accept it, which you want to do. So you want to ask some good follow-up questions in the book. I talk about two really simple follow-up questions that every seller can ask, which is, Oh, that's interesting. So what else can you tell me about that? Mm. What else can you tell me about that? So powerful. What else can you tell me about that? Uh, or alternatively, well, that's interesting. Tell me more. Yeah. And so you get the buyer to open up a little bit further because you're sincerely interested. You want to, you want to learn more. You want more answers. So you ask questions and which, which could lead to more questions depending sure. on how they answer that. Well, right? a, a quote I have in the book, which is one of my favorite quotes from Clayton Christensen uh, author of Innovator's Dilemma and other really fabulous books, who said that you know answers or excuse me, questions are places in your brain where answers go. If you don't ask the questions, the answers have no place to go. And I think mm-hmm. it's a great visual to circuit your mind is that I'm making room for answers by asking questions. Um, but anyway, when you ask your your two follow up questions or three, you can ask this. Oh, what else can you tell me about that? You can ask that two or three times in a row just to keep digging down to keep you know, sort of expanding what it is that you're hearing about and what you're learning about. And then you reach a point where it's sort of logical conclusion. You think you've got everything. You know, we train sellers all the time. Reflect back to the buyer. What did you just hear, right? Get confirmation. Mm-hmm. 
This is what I heard. Did I get that right? Perfect. Again, at this yeah. point, if you're still, if you're still in there, sellers yeah. have gone on. But there's another question you want to ask. That question is when you think, you know, they've confirmed that's exactly, you've heard that correctly. Then you ask, so what are we missing? Mm-hmm. What are we missing? It's like, boom, right? Head, head explode moment for the buyer. Cause it's like, now they really, they think again. It's like, oh yeah, well, yeah, let's, let's, let's get into this. You learn yeah. even more at that point. So just, yeah, one of the key lessons, just when you think you're done asking the questions, it also shows, wow, he or she really cares. <laughs> they care right? and it's that you, you're you know, sort of perceptive, right? Yeah. Oh, they know that there's more there. Right. Right. And it's just, it's another conversation trigger and that's what you want. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, Andy, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Talk, yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Tell people where, how can they get into the sell without selling out universe? <laughs> the universe. Yeah. You make it sound like the Marvel universe. Um, yeah. yeah. We don't have action figures yet, but then we might do that. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, start, start, uh, start two or three ways. One is you can come to uh, andypaul.com. And when you're there, you can download the free first chapter of the book. Uh, so it give you a little bit of a teaser of what's to come. Uh, certainly like it. if people pre-order the book that's you can certainly do that on Amazon any other place that you like to order your books book coming on February 22nd you can follow me on LinkedIn because uh, I am present there <laughs> a fair a fair degree um, and um, listen to my podcast Sales Enablement with Andy Paul we have just yeah, a little over a thousand episodes at this point so get a few under your belt yeah we got a few we've done this a, little, a couple times <laughs> so we will drop the links there in the show notes for everybody. If you enjoyed today's episode, please write us a review, share the show with your friends. It really does help us out. And we're always listening for your feedback. You can drop me a voice DM at salestransformation.fm and I will get back to you. Hey, you stuck around. That tells me you're serious about your own sales transformation. If you're tired of doing things the old way and want to get started in your journey with other people on the same path, head over to salescast.community and crush your numbers on your leaderboard. Yeah, it's free, salescast.community. Send me a DM with your best pitch and mention this ad, and I might even give you free access to our best templates.